my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the People's Covid Inquiry. Leading barrister Michael Mansfield tells us that he believes Boris Johnson and other senior politicians could be prosecuted for misconduct in public office. How would he sum up the government's handling of the pandemic? It's a combination of, if you like, political dogma, because it wants to ensure the private sector profits, alongside a kind of megalomania by the person in charge. More from Michael Mansfield QC, who chaired the inquiry, coming up shortly. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper, which has been highlighting the government's mishandling of the pandemic from the start. To find out how to subscribe, head over to bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. It'd make a great Christmas present. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. Now, it wasn't until May 2021 that Boris Johnson announced a full public inquiry into the government's handling of coronavirus. That was more than a year after the pandemic started, and it won't actually begin its work until spring 2022. We can only guess when it will present its findings, a classic case of a government kicking the can a long way down the road. But others haven't been so tardy. The Scottish government will start its coronavirus inquiry before the end of the year. And two committees of MPs, the Science and Technology Committee and the Health and Social Care Committee, published a report in October. They said the slow response to the initial outbreak amounted to one of the most important public health failures the United Kingdom has ever experienced, contributing to an overall death toll of 167,000 people so far. In February 2021, the People's Inquiry into Covid was launched by campaign group Keep Our NHS Public. It was chaired by barrister Michael Mansfield QC. He's been sharing his findings with me. He began by telling me about the scope of the inquiry. The scope we had was looking at matters that arose pre-pandemic, forewarnings that government had about the possibility, one, of a pandemic, but secondly, not just of a pandemic, but one that could be similar to the one we've got. And they had two exercises where this was examined, but of course the public weren't told about this until quite recently. So we looked at all that in the four months of hearings that we had, but that of course embraces also not just the planning aspect, but what was happening to the NHS before the pandemic. And it's not just hospitals, we're we're looking at care facilities and social services. In other words, the substructure for health and welfare which, as everybody has now gathered, you know, it, it, one part of it is your physical well-being and your mental well-being. But that is contributed to if you're living in difficult, poor circumstances and already in poor health. And of course, certain communities, as others have discovered, have been extremely vulnerable. So we looked at that, that what, what was there already run down into which this pandemic came. And then in terms of looking at the pandemic and how it was managed, and you will have seen we've entitled the report Misconduct in Public Office, it was, we say, seriously mismanaged 
from the beginning and still is being mismanaged to some extent as well. So we looked at the factors that bear upon mismanagement. One of them is the continued and intensified privatization, which actually began to flourish even more under the guise of an emergency. So the private sector benefited disproportionately, unreasonably, and it's all part of a a more political approach to health, which is intended essentially to disempower and disenfranchise the NHS by using private firms to provide various aspects of the National Health Service. So we looked at that because obviously the House of Commons certainly didn't look at that and who's responsible for that. So in other words, they come up with a conclusion that it's the worst public health failure in British history almost. And then they say, oh, well, it's sort of part of British fatalism and exceptionalism uh, that this has happened. In other words, there's no accountability whatsoever. So their report skips, dodges. And of course, it's not surprising because Mr. Hunt was one of the co-chairs. So Former that health is... Secretary. Uh, mm, exactly. So that gives you a flavour that we, we went much broader. There's one other factor I'd just like to add, because we were called the People's COVID Inquiry. And that's important because we put the people first in the sense that, spent time today adding up the number of witnesses, well over 50, in fact, uh, were called or read, one of the two, mostly called, nearly all called, but a a substantial number of those called were members of the public. So in other words, we weren't just relying on Professor Sir David King, eminent though he was, and a lot of other professors, but we also relied upon the bereaved. And we also looked at, for example, you know, people on the front line of transport, retail business, and of course, the front line of the hospitals and the care homes. So we got ordinary people to come in and say, look, how's it impacted on your lives? Which is not always the approach that is taken by inquiries of this kind. So we wanted to make sure people stayed at the centre. And one of the key insights I found, having read through the report, is the idea that this could not have been predicted is nonsense. This was predicted. Scenarios like this were, if you'll pardon the phrase, wargamed by government as far back as 2006. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, (laughs) to be honest, it's not my favourite point, but it's almost my favourite point. From the beginning, the outstanding point is that you don't have to be particularly versed in history, let alone bioscientific history, to know because e- even schoolboy interest in Shakespeare, will, will you will have remembered a plague on your house and so on. The plague or rather pandemics beyond just epidemics have been punctuating our history. So I appreciated myself just out of general knowledge. Pandemics are not predictable to the day and all the rest of it, but they are a phenomenon. I rather like the fact that Kate Bingham, who was the chair of the vaccines task force, she's not anymore, gave a lecture about a couple of weeks ago, in which she said, the most predictable threat to the United Kingdom is the next pandemic. But they don't seem to get it. They still don't seem to get it, I don't think. But so it struck me as they must have thought about this. Somebody must have. And if they didn't, they're seriously negligent. And the fact is that once you start examining it, yeah, they have thought about it. 
2006, his first one. 2016, they had two experiments in the one year, which they didn't want to broadcast. One was called Cygnus and the other called Alice. Mr. Hunt carefully avoided mentioning Alice and now says he didn't know anything about it, which again, it's a bit strange. However, he knew all about Cygnus and tried to pretend it was all based on flu and it wasn't satisfactory. None of that, the detail of that really matters. What really matters is people were doing their war games and having their desktop models. So they were working out what would happen. So did somebody do a risk assessment and say, hey, 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 because when it happens, it's not going to knock on the door and wait while you answer it. It's in. So they should be ready at the point at which they first gather information that something is happening. It doesn't matter where it's happening in the world. We're living, as Marshall McLuhan once said, in a global village. So basically, if it happens in China, if it's anywhere, it'll be everywhere. A phrase that's now become more familiar. And so I think it is the most great. That's why we've gone as far as part of the reason we've gone as far as saying there were avoidable deaths here. Had they got it prepared, the preparedness for you know PPE, stockpiling, ventilators, hospitals for what it was worth because they built hospitals that weren't used, but those particularly. But the, the central point is finding, testing, and tracing. They hadn't got on top of that. It took them ages, and then they paid vast billions of pounds to the private sector, and it, it didn't work. So it's a serious failure of planning and anticipation, and I think it does amount to serious misconduct. I think the detail is important and it is interesting. In 2006, your report says that the Government Office for Science predicted a global pandemic within the next 30 years due to a virus mutating from a wild animal to humans. Then, as you mentioned, in 2016, these two exercises, Cygnus and Alice, and the report which came out of Cygnus said that the UK was not prepared. So some element of the bureaucracy of government is carrying out this research, is carrying out these planning exercises, but at the centre, government, cabinet, prime minister are not listening to their own research. I agree, and obviously that is our point, that they're not listening to the research. Who knew about these tests? Well, government knew, the cabinet office were involved. Now, you don't get much closer to the prime minister than the cabinet office. And what were they doing when all this was going on? Were they going to Boris and saying, hey, hey, you know, you know what? Because even if they're a bit slow off the mark and they hadn't told him before they heard from China, they still had roughly two months to get things organised in a much better way. It wouldn't have meant no deaths, but it would have reduced the level of infection and death had they got it together in that period of time. And had they used existing NHS, if you like, networks, which they bypassed for, for reasons to do with the commercial sector. So I think that the fact that we, we did know about pandemics, they did know about, and it was based on MERS, the Middle Eastern Res- Respiratory Syndrome. In other words, very, very similar, a coronavirus. So they, they knew about it and they knew it was spread quickly. And you don't have time. You have to have stockpiles in advance. What do they do? As far as we know, nothing. How do you account for the fact that, in your words in the report, they were caught on the back foot in those early weeks and even months of the outbreak? It's not only that period, because there's that period where Boris Johnson was saying, 
first of all, ignore it. Ignore it. If you do you more harm than good if you exaggerate what this is all about. I'm going to shake the hands of everybody in it. Whatever. Uh, I mean, people sort of laugh and fob it off, but actually, it's you know that's he's gone on like that. Goes to hospitals, doesn't wear the mask. So first you've got to wear the mask, then you haven't got to wear the mask. That's another of the problems. It's totally inconsistent policy coming from him and his cabinet because they have a joint responsibility in this regard. And so at the very beginning where you have shocking stories in care homes where people are being released from hospital who can't, haven't been tested, take the virus straight into the care homes, stage number one. There's something like 40,000 out of the 167,000 deaths come from care homes. So I'm not surprised at all that the bereaved are saying, hey, 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 will you come and talk to us? And he rarely goes, that's Boris and uh, Johnson or any of the others, to speak to the bereaved in this matter. So that's the first wave. But then there's another time, which is in the autumn, not this year, last year, where he was trying to put off another lockdown. And he was trying to put it off because, in fact, and he's been doing it this time again in, in another way by not uh, master. Don't worry about master. We're back to normal. You can go about your daily lives as before. Well, he's changing that now, but because that's what happens. He changes it on the hoof. But there was another serious influx of deaths in the autumn of last year because, again, he, he hadn't listened to the public health advice any more than he has this autumn. They told him weeks ago. You've got to maintain a basic matrix of protection. Wearing a mask, two meters, everybody knows that, you know, slapping on the gel and, and just being careful. No, you know, not going into very large gatherings without the protection. It's not saying don't have them, but they've got to be regulated. That's all gone by the board. It's as though actually the virus has disappeared. So there's a second stage in which more people die needlessly. It's a well-versed and rehearsed quotation from the editor of the British Medical Journal, who said that the United Kingdom government had shown essentially deliberate and reckless indifference to human life. And he was referring there to the initial attempt. And in a sense, it's underlay quite a lot of certainly some of the Tories' objections to herd immunity. In other words, well, I know this comes from Dominic Cummings, so probably not that reliable. But anyway, you know, let the bodies pile up rather than, you know, business has got to work. It's back to the business component here. And of course, I think what we've seen through the evidence we've heard that actually a business community will only survive if it's got a healthy community. And so therefore, health has to come before, come before business, because otherwise you're not, not going to have a business. You keep your eye on both. But Boris, unfortunately, and his cabinet, have had a totally inconsistent patchwork policy, I call it, you know. It depends. What's it like today? Oh, right, getting up. Yeah, people bothered. Yeah, well, uh, okay, you've got to wear your mask. Oh, dear, the Tory backbenchers don't like having to wear masks. So he, he pulls that one. I mean, recently we've seen the, the whole question of cronyism. And, of course, one of them, Randox, Owen Patterson, and the way he, he was advocating on behalf of Radox. This was a medical contract. A lot of the contracts went to friends and neighbours, basically. So that's another aspect of this, with money being wasted in the process. But that, that's, that's the sort of picture that one gets. That's why it's 
not just the beginning, but it's the middle. And now we've got it again, where nobody really knows. And that's why a lot of people have just given up and just sort of said, you know, he, he doesn't, he's out of control here. The allegation that you make in the report then of misconduct in public office is a very serious one. Just explain to me what legal threshold might have to be met in order to carry out a prosecution and whether you think Boris Johnson and or members of his cabinet can actually be prosecuted. Well, I thought you might ask that question and I've got it in front of me. We've thought long and hard about this, but there are two aspects. One, there's misconduct generally. It can be described as misconduct in public office as a general theme from the non-planning all the way through. So that's one thing. Secondly, it just so happens that the misconduct could be capable of amounting to, it's, a, it's quite rarely brought, but there is an offence. It's a common law offence. It's not a statutory. They've been wanting to reform it, but they've never got around to it. But these are the elements. And when I read them out, people say, oh, right. So I'm going to read what the actual elements are. And it comes from... Um, actually quite a recent case, but there aren't many prosecutions under this. Offences committed when a public officer, well, we've got that, so that's all right, willfully neglects, now I'm going to pause, willful means that it's not accidental or just a serious mistake. Willfully neglects to perform his duty or hers well, I'm going to pause there. That's the first half of this. Yes, we say it's that, certainly. Ha has deliberately neglected. In other words, it wasn't uh, something he did by accident. He, he or his ministers before the COVID set in, but certainly once it did set in, neglected to perform his duty. There's an or in this. It can be and or willfully misconducts himself. Well, they're, they're virtually the same. So I'm just going to concentrate on willfully neglects to perform his duty. So that's the second thing. So we, we can satisfy that, at least on a prima facie basis, where we say, in fact, the prosecuting authorities need to look at this. And then it's to such a degree as to amount to an abuse of the public's trust in the office holder. Well, I think we have established that the public's trust couldn't be lower than it is in what he's been saying. And I'm concentrating on the public health aspect of this. And therefore, sometimes they say, does it merit condemnation? Has there been damage to the public interest? The answer is yes, it does merit condemnation. Whatever can be said about vaccine, it doesn't absolve his responsibility which is running parallel to the vaccine. And then the final element, without reasonable excuse or justification. Well, there's no reasonable excuse or justification. What, that he didn't realise there was a pandemic? Or he did realise, but he didn't know what facility? I mean, you know, it doesn't stand up. So it seems to me that we're saying, basically, the elements are all there. We can't bring the pros uh, prosecution. And the fact that the Director of Public Prosecutions is normally consulted about a case of this, this magnitude. But it seems to me that uh, it's happening in other countries, and I think we put in the report uh, in France and in, in, in Europe, there are other leaders being pursued, and in Brazil, for neglect, basically, or at this sort of level. Now, there are other, all sorts of other possible offences, but it seemed 
to us that this umbrella misconduct in public office encompasses and embraces both the vernacular, he didn't do this and he didn't do that and he didn't, but actually it amounts to the key element to such a degree as to amount to an abuse of the public's trust in the office holder. Seems to me that's absolutely what it is. So that would need the director of public prosecutions, though, to yes. take a stance, someone who is appointed by Boris Johnson. You're right. It's a difficult situation. However, the director, Max Hill, were he to be sitting here alongside us in this interview, he'd say, oh, well, I'm totally independent. That's my point. That's my appointment. Uh, it may be subject to political appointment as to who is eventually put into this position, but it is on advice of various other people besides the politicians, which is true. But I, I think, as we've seen on other decisions which relate to coronavirus, I think the director will, well, he needs to think long and hard about this one, because there'll be a number of people, I'm aware, are already thinking about this in general terms. So all we're doing is saying, we think Prima facie, there's a case to be investigated here. We haven't got the power to investigate it because it's not just Boris. Other people failed to take decisions before the virus reached our shores, decisions in the decade before. And so it could be a previous Minister of Health like Jeremy Hunt, or it could be somebody in the Cabinet Office who hasn't acted upon the outcomes of these various exercises and so on. So it's not just Boris Johnson. No one, one doesn't want to, as it were, use him as a scapegoat because he, he, he's not the only one in this ballgame. But based on the evidence that you've gathered in the COVID People's Inquiry, you would like to see the Director of Public Prosecutions take forward a prosecution, at least investigate whether Boris Johnson and those <laughs> other people you mentioned could be charged. Yeah, I mean, he will say he doesn't instigate prosecutions and so on, and he oversees them. So it would be a case of going to the Metropolitan Police and saying, because government's based in Westminster, go to the Met and say, these are the elements that we've looked at. The Common Select Committee didn't do it, and no one else has done this. We think this needs to be investigated at the various stages of development from pre-pandemic early stages, middle stages, and now. There may be different people who qualify under these different elements. We're, we haven't got all the inside documentation from government, which a judicial inquiry should get. But our concern is that uh, the rate things are going, it doesn't even seem to be on the horizon. It's talked about, but you know, nothing, there's nothing concrete at all. How would you summarise the government's handling of the pandemic, in your view? The summary would be that it has been thoroughly incompetent. And the reason it's been thoroughly incompetent is because government had not acquainted itself with what had been happening in the decade before. And that's serious neglect and I call it gross negligence, by the government before we even get to the COVID pandemic. And when we get there, we have a leader who I think in general terms, and over the pandemic he's done exactly the same, is transient. In other words, 
his policy changes from day to day. And it depends very much on the mood of the moment as to what he's going to say and what he's going to ask people to do. And even his own party are now realizing that one day he says, do this. The next day he says, oh, sorry, I don't mean that, do that. That vacillation combined with incompetence because at the end of the day, it's about a government trying to, as it were, impress the nation and stay in power. And it's about empowering the private sector. So my summary is it's a combination of, if you like, political dogma, because it wants to ensure the private sector profits alongside a kind of megalomania by the person in charge. And that is you know, an unbeatable combination. Michael Mansfield QC. Here's Dr Tony O'Sullivan, a retired consultant paediatrician and co-chair of Keeper NHS Public, who commissioned the inquiry. What did he make of the findings? The overall headline for me is different from the Joint Select Committee, where they, they said it was one of the greatest public health failures, which it, it, which it has been, the COVID pandemic. I think it's the greatest failure of government for a long time. I would put the failure in the political context. It's just been a dreadful betrayal of the British population. And that's in so many different ways. 167,000 deaths is, is one of the worst death rates in the world. Not the worst, but one of the worst. For amongst the richer nations, we've had perhaps the worst economic hit. So government policy to protect the economy has failed. And that failure has hit the the most disadvantaged again. The issue of inequalities that has been, that has bedeviled the British population for the last 12 years has hit home even worse during the pandemic. So the discriminatory impact of COVID on on the most vulnerable, the most at risk, the, the, the black and Asian minority ethnic community, women, all of those disadvantages have been ramped up to a horrendous level. And all of this was so predictable. And if you throw into the mix there, cronyism and unlawful contracting, lying, lack of candor, lack of openness, it's just a gross failure of government. So it's shocking. We've heard from Michael Mansfield on the podcast giving his findings. And of course, his inquiry was funded by Keep Our NHS Public. Some people listening to this might say, well, look, given the nature of your campaigning organisation, you set the inquiry up to achieve the result that you have got. I'm sure some people do say that, but we would say, first of all, the government refused to set up a public inquiry. So it was absolutely necessary. And our the title of our inquiry was Learn the Lessons and Save Lives. And that was absolutely necessary. And the government's still repeating the same mistakes. Secondly, you know, if you look at the range of people whom we've taken as witnesses, we deliberately did not take them from the politically committed arena. You know, we, we've had uh, witnesses from with areas of expertise in, in public health, health and safety issues, in social inequality, like Professor 
Sir Michael Marmot. We've had frontline staff who brought to the inquiry very vivid testimony of the very real impact, removing all political messaging, real impact on the NHS social care education workforce. We brought the voices of trade unions on more than one occasion, you know, where the government had deliberately slighted the education profession, blaming teachers for not caring about children, blaming everybody but themselves, really, but blaming frontline staff for not taking precautions or not using PPE in the right way. So Keep Our NHS Public believes, you could say this is a political position, but actually it isn't in itself. It believes in the need for public services. And I would say that in this pandemic, this has never, ever been more clear that you need publicly committed servants with no other agenda than to promote the safety of the population, be that in health or frontline emergency services or social care or indeed education and public transport. The inquiry has heard those voices which were not listened to by the Joint Select Committee and they didn't listen to testimony from bereaved families either. And I think that's a, a massive failing. So I'm actually proud and willing to stand up for Keeper Our Anxious Public taking the lead on this and feeling a deafening silence from the government that they, they were actually, from the word go, they were saying herd immunity is the way forward. And until we get herd immunity from everybody getting the infection, we will concentrate on vaccination development and they let the virus run rampant. And that is the consequence. We've had the, the longest lockdowns of all the, the major economies, the worst economic impact, and we've failed to protect this population from this massive death toll. Do you think the government deserves credit for the vaccination rollout? Why not give them some credit? The vaccination programme is basic public health policy. You, you have a new virus and you use your expertise the expertise is funded by public money in the NHS, in the universities, in the research establishments. And we've got a fantastic background of science and collaboration between scientists across the world. And yes, we did have a great partnership with, for example, Oxford University and AstraZeneca. The delivery of the vaccination program has been down to public service, down, down to the NHS and primary care services and local government collaborating. So, of course, it is a great thing that vaccines were developed early and fast. But one of the basic principles of the World Health Organization is no one's safe until everybody's safe. And the vaccination policy has two major flaws. One that they vaccinated all the richer nations first and have not shared the vaccine equally. And two, related to that, at this time of world pandemic and world danger and millions and millions of people dying, they have refused to waive intellectual property rights so that countries that can ill afford vaccines are being charged really high amounts, like Botswana was paying 27 dollars per vaccine, for example, where the Omicron variant has just emerged. So yes, 
it is very good that we developed that. It is very wrong that it hasn't been made available to the whole world, including the most vulnerable populations. Dr. Tony O'Sullivan. Now, we did put the comments made by Tony and Michael Mansfield to the government. They said, in response... COVID-19 is an unprecedented pandemic which has challenged health systems around the world. Thanks to our collective national effort, our preparedness plans and our frontline NHS workers, we have saved lives, vaccinated tens of millions of people and prevented the NHS from being overwhelmed. We prepared for a range of scenarios and by deploying key elements of our flu preparedness plans, we were able to develop new means to tackle the virus quickly such as by setting up our national testing programme and rolling out millions of vaccines. Every death from this virus is a tragedy, and we have always said there are still lessons to be learned from the pandemic, which is why we have committed to a full public inquiry in spring. That's the government response. If you want to respond, get in touch. You can drop us a note to goldbergradio at gmail.com or join the conversation on Twitter at bylinetimespod. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.